So I ran three miles home, got home, and I was kind of okay until I looked down and saw I was covered in blood. And it was my friend's blood. At which point I must have gone into shock because um, I don't remember what happened next. On the 18th of January 2013, the variety show that I put together called Stand Up Tragedy is returning. Tragedy will be kicking off at 7.30 at the Hackney Attic, where comedy, music, true story, fiction, all sorts of different acts will be trying to make you laugh until you cry and cry until you laugh. There's an absolutely brilliant lineup, and you should check out www.standuptragedy.co.uk for more details. Today's GBA guest, Andy Bodle, will be performing on the 18th. He'll be telling some of his sadder, more depressing true stories. Come along, hear him, experience some tragedy. It's going to be a really excellent night. Hopefully, see you there. Indeed. Well, I mean, I've smoked on lots of the shows, and uh, it's. Uh, I don't know. It's catch twenty two, isn't it? It means that there's all this, but it sounds kind of natural, at least as well. Yeah. When, as a smoker, listening to the shows when there's people smoking, it makes me want to have a cigarette, just like on TV. Yeah. But probably people who don't smoke are like horrified by the sound of the inhalations and thinking, "Oh my God, this cancer happening right now." <laughs> Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better Please make me better I want to get better 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 acquainted with you So today we're getting better acquainted with Andy. Hello Andy. Hi. <laughs> you're not the first person to wave at the to microphone. To wave at the microphone. You're not. I mean, it's funny. And in fact, I should say, you'll probably be more aware of the microphone than some of the guests because we've just been using the microphone to record you for your blog. And so you'll be sort of much more aware of, of what that thing can do. Um, I've never actually recorded someone after they've watched me taking their files and moving them about and all sorts of things like that. Microphones are um, much more un unforgiving than cameras, I've decided. I don't know Capture about that. Capture every loss. I don't, I don't know about that. I, I, I much prefer being a face for radio than a, than a face uh, on a camera. So the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? I know you through Spark London, which is uh, a storytelling club, which I'm sure Dave has spoken about before. That's right. I got into it about four or five years ago, I guess. It must have been about a year after it started. I went along to see a friend tell a story there. Fell in love with the idea. I loved the atmosphere the way that all the storytellers got talking to the audience afterwards and immediately wanted, wanted to tell a story myself and ended up doing one about two months later and now I've done about five or six I think and I uh, must have met Dave. For the yeah. I think we met for the first time in Edinburgh. I, th I was think thinking really? about this. I think so. Right. I think we've not been at the same spark nights before but we may have actually you may have been in the audience because you come along in the audience side of things. Yeah yeah I've, I've been to watch a few times. So I may have met you before. I think you were maybe doing the sound one night when I was in the audience. Ah, so you'd have seen me sitting at the side of the stage trying to not be there. Yeah, <laughs> I, exactly. I don't like doing that recording, which I've occasionally done filling in for my friend Matt, but I don't like doing that because you're on stage all the time and 
if I drop something or something like that, it's going to distract from somebody's story. And I've been that person doing that story, and I'm really, really aware of how I don't want to ruin their, their story. So it's a bit horrible experience being up on stage, but hopefully I didn't distract too much. This is like the, the second time we've actually talked and been kind of social with each other. Yeah. The, fir the first time was when Spark went up to Edinburgh this year, where I, I paid a flying visit to the first night. We both performed on stage together, actually. And it's a, it's a funny thing, because... I mean, we've only met twice, really, yeah. but we've probably in that time had quite a lot of uh, conversations about areas that uh, you know you don't normally get into because we're telling true stories. So we've got more context for each other's life than you do for sort of strangers when you first meet them. Yes, we probably know more about each other after two meetings than most people do after ten. The second question I ask everybody is, what do you do now? Well, I used to be a sub-editor at The Guardian full-time, and about five years ago I um, failed to get promoted for the seventh time in a row so I quit in a fit of peak having just sold some uh, scripts to an American TV station I was thinking right I can be a full time script writer now of course uh, didn't quite pan out that way didn't get any more scripts sold so I'm sort of drifting back into journalism as a freelancer but I am doing a bit more writing now doing a blog I was a question setter for Only Connect for the first three or four seasons which was quite oh, interesting okay. a little sideline so yeah bits and bobs really I would quite like eventually to return to some sort of not a nine to five but a more reliable income stream but um, I'm quite enjoying the freelancing at the moment sure I, I, freelancing is my goal freelancing is what I aspire to so yeah the, your blog is Womanology it's called that's right and you're doing that at the moment what is Womanology? <laughs> how did it start out it was basically I think the, the original aim of it was to, uh, to be a book and it's because I'm 42 now and I started writing it when I was 38 and basically at the age of 38 I was single I'd been single most of my life not to say I hadn't had any interactions with the opposite sex I'd had a few relationships and a year was my record I'd also had I think more than my fair share of uh, romantic disasters so dates that went wrong in spectacular fashion humiliations rejections i had a friend at work and we used to go to the pub after work together and I'd, every time we'd go to the pub i seemed to have a different story about another woman who'd spurned me or a, another date that had gone hilariously wrong and uh, one day she turned to me and said i'm sure you've got enough of these for a book and because the script writing work had dried up and i realized that what i what i really needed was a sort of portfolio or something to get my name out there and uh, I'm not really into the idea of writing books, but I thought I, I do have maybe one book in me, so I'll I'll do this. Hopefully, get it published, and then then I can be. Oh, he's the guy who wrote that book, so it'll get my scripts read a bit earlier. Because, sure. Yeah, yeah. So I set about writing down all of these. Uh, there were eighty originally different stories of, sort of bad dates and uh, bad relationships, and a, a few good ones as well. And uh, that's come down to seventy because I've removed the more boring or repetitive ones you know sure. there's no point in uh, telling two dates that went wrong in exactly the same fashion <laughs> I found out that actually it's not uncommon for people to try and write about their, their sob stories so I thought how can I give mine a different angle and because I've all, always been into science particularly evolution evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology I thought maybe it would be interesting to go back and, and not just say what went wrong but then try and find out why it went wrong right so um I read through feminist literature, I read Chicklet, I watched Sex and the City, and I also read lots and lots of academic papers on um, the things like the differences between the sexes and uh, why, 
how and why we evolved our mating behaviours. Right. And then tried to apply them to my own life to see if uh, I could make any sense of it, basically. And I mean, yeah, and, and so that's I mean, and that's where you, where you're going at with the blog. It's an interesting uh, blog to read. I've been finding. I mean, because it's it's got a kind of there's an autobiographical element because it talks about some in, you know important life experiences for you, and then there's the science element, and then there's the sex element, which is a, another thing that uh, deserves its own strand <laughs> when when recounted. Yeah, I've been enjoying it, and I find it very interesting. I'm interested in evolutionary psychology as well. I'm also sceptical of some of it, I guess. I think that yeah, sometimes fair. it's used to say things that it aren't there, you know, like all science. It's some the conclusion people. that is the dangerous bit where people might put their subjective opinion in. Some people do use it to justify things like sex discrimination yeah. and, uh, you know, to say, perpetuate those old arguably myths about you know men are better at map reading and women are better at talking yeah. and it's true that some of the evidence can be used that way but um, I uh, broadly speaking I think a lot of what it's uncovering it's, it's a, still a, a growth industry there's, there's more and more people doing research on this area mm. all the time and I think a lot of it there's a lot of truth in it um, sure I, I think so too I, I mean I, I'm being skeptical of it doesn't mean I don't think that it's important especially I mean if we want to understand what it is to be human then we have to understand evolution where we've and come from yeah. evolution and reality do suggest that there are differences between the sexes it's just what those differences are is is so hard to unpick because you have got this kind of the nurture bit the social forces to to try and put to one side when you're trying to work out what we are innately yes and uh i mean so i think it's an important area last night when i knew coming over i googled you and so the first thing that came up yeah <laughs> this must be quite annoying for you that it's the first thing that comes up but the first thing that came up was a daily mail article by you yeah about how you were addicted to call girls yes um the, it was them that insisted on the use of the word addiction yeah i uh, thought it was a very daily mail decision uh in terms of the addiction word yeah it was well let, let me t tell you why i wrote that article to start that's most people's question is why the hell did you tell everyone about that? Yeah. And well, the, the main reason was I was about a year into writing the book. I thought I was close to finishing it. Turned out, turned out I was about three years off. But I thought this would be a good bit of early publicity. You know, get um, pick the, arguably the most salacious and uh, scandalous story in there. Get it in the papers. Get it talked about, and that way I would be able to get more interest from agents and things like that. And and it and it did work from this perspective. Um, we should probably. I should probably tell you about the article first. Basically, in my early 30s, uh, when I started to lose my hair and all my friends were settling down, I had a lot of spare money, a lot of spare time, I was bored, and I hadn't had a girlfriend for about three years. And um, I, essentially, in the course of 18 months, I spent about £15,000 on visiting escorts, which I know is a lot of money and it's a bad thing. And I, I, I stopped, uh, I think 10 years ago, it must have been the last time I paid for sex. So why why is it a bad thing? I mean, my view on on prostitution is it it's going to happen regardless. So I I don't think it should be illegal. And obviously I'm against the sex slave trade. Yeah. Obviously. But what a individual chooses to do with their body is kind of their decision. 
and so if it's a consensual decision I don't necessarily have a problem with that as long as it's a fair transaction and you were paying large amounts of money I mean I think the first one in the the first number quoted in that article was £600 or something yeah that was probably fair Oh, no, I think, for three I think hours. The, the first time was pr- was probably more like seven or eight hundred because it was for three hours. Because I, I thought I really sort of bought into the whole pretty woman thing. I thought it was an actual you were paying for a date and you had to take a bottle of wine and some flowers and talk to them for an hour and sort of and seduce them. Rather, it turns out you know that most people are a lot more cynical than that and they just turn up, get down to business, usually. <laughs> Last no longer than an hour and then they leave um, but yeah for, for the whole time I was doing it I romanticised it I guess and I, I did treat it as a proper date and uh, made sure I read all the papers so I had something interesting to talk about and things like that Yeah. Uh, but the, the trouble is to go back to what you were just saying um, I wouldn't have a problem with it either if you could guarantee every time that every girl was doing it willingly Sure. And it was just towards the end I met a couple of girls who weren't obviously weren't very happy doing what they were doing um, yeah but whether they were being pressured into doing it whether they just really needed the money either way it it wasn't fun for me or them and i thought well, as, as long as i can't tell whether or not they're doing it fully willingly or reluctantly i i'm just i'm better off not doing it at all you know? yeah you know sure I, mean? I get i can i can see your your reasoning there it is a very complicated issue i mean i think Oh, I mean, you know, you can go backwards and forwards in your mind about it. I mean, I, I, I don't judge people who use prostitutes, and I don't judge prostitutes, but I do judge people who don't treat human beings like human beings yeah. for whatever reason. And I definitely, I mean, it's you know, on the bottom end of the market is is where you're going to find the most uh, exploited people. Yeah. And, and I felt that I was contributing to that and perpetuating it and um, it just ended all, the only way to end all the sort of conflict within myself was just to, to stop doing it. Yeah, um, sure. The other problem with it, of course, is that people like you and me don't judge uh, anyone in the sex industry, but yeah, there are a lot of people out there yeah. that do. And, um, you know, it has, even just that article being in the mail, even though it was 10 years after the fact, I have lost, you know, there are a few people now who won't speak to me, people who won't commission me as a writer. Right. As you say, it's still at the top of the Google list because it was on the Daily Mail, which is obviously just pushes it higher up, up, this, up the search engine. So so you, it's always going to be there. Yeah. So um, did you you lost friends, I guess, then? Did um, you? Or no just close friends. Because right. I, I sort of cleared it with... I mean, I was going out with someone at the time and obviously I had to clear it with her. I had to clear it with my parents. I had to warn everyone beforehand, and most people were, were very supportive and, um, and understanding. But I knew that that wasn't always going to be the case uh, with everyone. And how do women feel like who you're dating? How do they? Do you tell them about this? I mean, I guess it's out there, so they can find it. So you probably have to get in there quick. No one has had a problem with it yet. Okay. Um, as I say, but I, I was dating someone seriously at the time, and I've only actually. Been on dates since that finished um, once or twice, but and both of those uh, women have obviously googled me and found it, and but they haven't had a problem with it either. But um, yeah, it's, it's it's going to it's going to stay with me. <laughs> but uh, as I say, it 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 did have the required effect. The day after it appeared in the mail, I got a phone call from someone 
at GMTV. Yeah, right. I think a video of you on YouTube on GMTV is the second thing. I, on the I think YouTube. it's actually the section with Lorraine is actually a separate program these days. I mean, I'm not quite sure how it works, but sure. anyway, it was, I was interviewed by Lorraine Kelly the next day, and she was uh, actually she wasn't remotely Jeremy Paxman like. She was really sweet and nice and very delicate. And in fact, um, I, I sort of prepared myself for a bit of a grilling, but she was so gentle with me that I never really got to defend my position. So that day, I just when I'd done the interview I got back on my computer sent out emails to agents and every single one oh no I, I called them actually and every single one said yeah send me the manuscript so it kind of had the required effect it certainly um, moved me to the top of the slush pile as it were of course I didn't actually get a publishing deal out of it but um, I guess by the end you weren't enjoying the experiences of doing it and you were feeling guilty about it I mean has it has that guilt reverberated in your life after that I mean how has it affected you now in the way that you look at women and the way that you engage with women I, weirdly, I think it kind of had a positive effect overall because, as I say, at the time my, my self-esteem was really low and um, just these 18, 18 months meeting these like really attractive women and a lot, most of them were very bright and chatty as well and very enjoyable times apart from the two or three times towards the end when they, those girls who weren't enjoying themselves. It boosted my self-esteem and I, I realised that, okay, this was an artificial situation, I was paying them, but it actually made me feel like Oh no, I am. I, I can. I am attractive enough and a decent enough person to actually uh, maintain a dialogue with people as attractive as this, and it increased, I think, my respect for the opposite sex. Okay, that's a very interesting observation. I mean, where do you think that kind of evolutionary psychology and biology comes into the sex industry? Um, oh, there's a there's quite a lot of stuff on this. I'm going to deal with it in my blog eventually obviously when I uh, tell, tell it, yeah. the escorting story on my blog but the economics of sex is a really interesting factor like you're probably aware that male prostitution women paying for sex with men almost never happens I mean there are myths about gigolos and things but mostly it they, happens they are, they a bit myths. I think but, but it's, it's, it's lesser much lesser much much lesser and, when, and they do women do pay for the date yeah, for I think that sex may be the factor at the end of that date that's part of what they want mm. but they want the date and I think not not all men want the fantasy no quite a lot of men just need to get off yeah um, and that's that's all boils down to how um, and I think this is innate and this will be controversial so some people might be angered by this but I, I do believe the uh, evolutionary psychological theory that men have a higher sex drive certainly that sex is a female commodity so it's always men who propose it's always men who approach women in a nightclub sex is something that the woman has that the man wants and not vice versa See, I mean, I yes women like sex but they don't have to go out and get it it's, it's the man's job as it were to make it happen mm, I, I'd, personally I mean, I'm not angered by that opinion but I don't think it's entirely accurate I guess my feeling about it is genders are spectrum so you do find and I know in my personal life very highly sexed women who will go out and get it absolutely and I'm sure everybody does and also I was surprised in my personal life to discover men who weren't interested in sex particularly like that, that seems alien to me but they they exist and uh, I'm glad that they exist because it does prove this idea that, that the generalizations are too pat 
I mean, I think men and women look for different things in sex, and I think that there are different things that work. Like men are visually stimulated more than women. Yeah. Not that women don't enjoy watching visual stimulation. A lot of them do, but men are kind of classically visually stimulated. Women are interested in the emotional relationship as a rule that's the thing that turns them on yeah. whatever that is it might be it might it might be bdsm it might be any kind of emotional it might you know it might not be a pleasant emotional experience but mm. it, but it that's the thing that does it for them i think yeah but we're all um, individuals and as i say yeah it's it's difficult painting things in such broad strokes I listened to a podcast called Savage Love, which mm. is done by a guy called Dan Savage. Have you heard of him? I have, yes. I've recommended his Yeah, stuff. I reckon you, you'd get a lot out of his podcast. You know, that will challenge your your kind of statement that women don't want sex or don't... don't no, I, I never said they no, don't no, want no. sex. I no, just, no, no. The, but, you know, they're less likely to in, instigate it. Dan Savage is very interested in evolutionary psychology as well. Uh, he answers things very straight up and he introduced me to a book called sex at dawn have you heard of that no i haven't i really really suggest it um i've got it here but i'm not going to lend it you because i haven't read it yet okay. i've started reading it but uh i just don't have the time yeah it's a, the prehistoric origins of modern sexuality it's by christopher ryan and his partner casilda jetha i didn't pronounce Presumably that not christopher ryan from of young ones fame no no he's american <laughs> it, it's about how what we think about sex may be completely and utterly off mm. and if we go back to how we initially were when we were not pretending not to be animals as much as we pretend not to be animals now yeah but i haven't read it completely yet but i've listened to christopher ryan talk about it a lot so i i almost feel like i've read it already okay. it's a very brave thing to be to have out there i mean i recognize that there was a calculating decision in <laughs> Putting yeah, it a, a cost-benefit analysis, like, is this going to gain me more than it's going to lose me? And I, th I think on the whole I stand by my, my decision. The, the other factor in, in the, the decision was that periodically you get in papers, you know, confessions of a, of a, of a high-class escort, confessions yeah. of, a, of a streetwalker, whatever. But try as I might, I couldn't find anything from the man's point of view. Well, I, no, I, I, I don't think anyone had ever piped up and admitted, hey, look, I paid for sex. This is why. Uh, and I, I wanted to stimulate a debate about it. Um, and while it didn't, there were a few things on Jezebel.com and uh, it was a bit of discussion afterwards, but it didn't really trigger a huge debate. But um, I did have, and I still get them to this day, I occasionally get messages on Facebook from people going, hey, um, I really appreciate that thing you wrote. I was really honest and I've been thinking about doing, my, doing it myself. Can you offer me any advice? Or I did it and I'm feeling guilty about it. Um, what, what, what should I do? And um, so I feel like to, maybe I have, provided a small service to some people out there in, what, in what answers way. do you give to people I mean if w the first one I'm thinking about doing it myself I, I think I, I just had to sort of restate what I said in the story really and say look if your conscience can handle it and if you're sure that the women involved aren't being abused or uh, and are doing it advisedly and consentingly then then I guess I don't have a problem with that but I can't I couldn't tell people to do it or to not do it, I could just tell present them, them with your experience. Exactly. And what? But what if they say they're feeling guilty? I and mean, what about the second question? I mean, how do? What would you say to somebody that has been involved in it but feels guilty and it's destroying their sense of self? I guess. Uh, stop. Um, <laughs> yeah, obviously. Um, maybe seek therapy. I don't know. It's, it's not my. It's not your area of expertise. You yourself have dealt with it and moved on. Yeah, I, I, I feel. I feel bad, but I th I hope that I've 
done my penance now. Yeah. Uh, and, you know. I'm trying to think of a se- how way to segue into the next topic that I've got written on my list, and I really am not sure how to do it, apart from to just not segue at all. Okay. <laughs> Although th- I guess that was a segue, what I just did then. When you were a teenager, you had a, a, a number of suicide attempts. Yes, I was... I wouldn't say I was a very unhappy teenager. I mean, I was bullied a bit at school. You know, it turns out most people were. I was good in class. I had some friends. I had lovely parents. I couldn't have asked for anything more from them. But my problem was I was just far too... I'm going to put this... I worried far too much about girls. I desired them with every atom of my being, and I just wasn't getting anywhere. And one girl in particular, who was my best friend at the time, I fell in love with, and she didn't reciprocate my feelings. And at various times, she led me to believe there might be something, and then there wasn't. And then her mum took me to one side one day, and she said, she loves you, she just doesn't know it yet. So I was constantly having my hopes oh raised God. and then dashed. That's a bad That's a bad move by the mum, I mean... And then at one particular occasion, it was my birthday party, and she we had actually kissed for the first time about a month previously. And I, again, I've been led to believe that something might happen. And in fact, very early on in the party, we found ourselves alone in the, in the dining room, and she kissed me, and we had a snog in the dark, and it was great. And I thought this was the beginning of something beautiful. And went back to the party, and a couple of hours later, um, I couldn't see her, and I couldn't see there was this other guy, um, this guy who I incidentally hated, posing smarmy scumbag. Um, <laughs> I, I hunted high and low, couldn't find either of them, and eventually I went into the spare room and there they were. I think they were mostly clothed, but anyway, it was obvious what would be going on. So that time, and after a couple of the other times, I did mount some sort of half-hearted, but felt quite serious at the time, attempts to take my own life. Well, they were uh, they were hearted enough to end up in hospital, well, one of them at least, that yeah. I read on your blog. Yeah, the, the first time was just... I was feeling miserable. I was alone in the house. I uh, and I tried to hang myself from the beam of the, of the garage, uh, but I tried to do it with some curtain net wire because there wasn't any rope in the house. And anyone with an elementary understanding of uh, material science will know that curtain net wire that stretches when you put it under stress. So <laughs> instead of hanging myself, I just had a very sore neck and it lowered me gently to the ground. So I, after that, I just ended up feeling a bit silly and. Uh, the second time I climbed up to the top floor of the highest building in Swindon and climbed out on the ledge and I was about to jump but I had my Walkman on me and um, this is so embarrassing I was lis- listening to Phil Collins's No Jacket Required which was my favourite album at the time and I just said to myself right I'm going to go at the end of the next song and then that song came to an end but I realised I quite like the next one as well so okay I'll go at the end of the next song and, and so on and so forth uh, until the album finished uh, the tape recorder clicked shut and then I realised I didn't want to kill myself anymore so I climbed back in and the third time was very messy it was a party, there was alcohol there was a car crash and then <laughs> I ran away from the car because the guy whose car it was who was much older than me who it had been his, his idea that I drive in the first place told me to run away and he'd say it was him so I ran three miles home, got home, and I was kind of okay until I looked down and saw I was covered in blood. And it was my friend's blood. At which point I must have gone into shock because um, I don't remember what happened next. Uh, next thing I remember is waking up in hospital. Uh, the, the, my friend was in the next room. He'd lost. He'd gone through the windscreen and come back, and he'd lost his front teeth. 
but he was remarkably chipper, actually. Uh, and I apparently had rifled through the kitchen drawers, taken out all the sharpest knives, run off into the woods and tried to slash, to slash my wrists. Yeah, well, you did it the wrong way, which is a good thing. I don't yeah, want let, I don't, I don't not want to tell, tell people, people the right way. I know, way. I know. When I found out the right way, mm. it was when I read Prozac Nation. For a few weeks, I was like telling people about it, and then I started thinking, hang on, should I really be just randomly just telling everybody the right way to kill themselves? Probably not, so no. I don't do that anymore, yeah. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> the, the, and then I suddenly, you know, after this, I realised that I had been getting things a little bit out of proportion. It wasn't actually the end of the world if I couldn't have this particular girl. So I reached a, a more even keel after that. And apart from anything else, weirdly after that, this girl did finally go out with me. Um, I hired a band and serenaded her with Elton John's Your Song under her window on her 18th birthday. And then she finally agreed to go out with me. So after that, I, I was there was no need to kill myself. We lasted about a year. And then um, when we went to university, we broke up. But <laughs> Yeah. Well, we've just been recording a, a story about the kind of end of that. that about thing. that period, about yeah. How you may have wanted her for a very long time, but then you also wanted somebody else. And uh, well, I, that's I was curious <laughs> about someone else who was yeah. r rubbing her legs up against to, uh, next to mine in French class. Hmm. Um, but I never, I wasn't, I wasn't unfaithful. No, well, fair enough. Uh, that's uh, that's good. It, it's always a good thing not to break someone's trust. I think. Like, we may not be designed to be monogamous, but uh, we should be honest, I think. Honest and respectful of whoever we are with at the Indeed. time. Indeed, absolutely. I mean, so was it just your teenage years when you when you kind of went through, I guess, a depressed state, I guess, would be part of it? Well, it was, yeah, that was, I suppose, my lowest point. Obviously, the escort phase was, was, was pretty low as well. And um, it's all related to sexuality, isn't it? I mean, it, it's... I know, it's terrible. I feel so shallow that you know most of the most of the course of my life has been dictated by my desire for sex or at least for love or for, for a partner and I have kind of judged my entire life my happiness has always been to do with sex which I th is a terrible state of affairs but I, I don't know if it's something you can change no I'm not sure it is I don't think you can necessarily change how you're wired sexually I think you can only find ways to deal with it better yeah. and that's probably the case with most things about ourselves we find ways of managing ourselves better as we get older I guess yes quite and then I suppose there was technically another down period which is an another one of the stories that will be on the blog eventually which was um, I was addicted to cocaine for about two or three years so the powder form the powder form yes um, well if you're going to get addicted to cocaine that's probably the better one to get <laughs> addicted to um, yeah, it just started out as a social thing with friends, but then as the friends got married, uh, had kids and moved away, I was still getting it in just for me, and uh, so I'd have these big, huge, lost weekends. I never missed a day's work. I'm, I once missed half a day's work. But, uh, yeah, so every Friday I'd get my fix, go home, just completely lose the weekend on the internet, looking at porn or playing computer games or whatever. And feeling really good about yourself while you're doing it because oh, you're absolutely. on cocaine. <laughs> and yeah, so what, two, two and a half grams, and then four or five bottles of wine, two packets of fags, and that, that was that was my life for about two years until I went cold turkey. And that was when, funnily enough, that coincided with the, me rediscovering my love of writing and my. Um, my desire to write a sitcom, which is something I'd always dreamt about doing. And did you hit rock bottom with the cocaine 
or did you just think this isn't working for me? It never got out of control. I never got into debt. As I say, I didn't I'd miss any work. I'd, I did miss a couple of people's parties, but I didn't really lose any friends out of it. So what made you stop? It was affecting my health. Right. I was putting on weight. Okay. My teeth. I, I, I never realised that um, excessive cocaine use can uh, it softens your teeth. Um, so then I, I went to the dentist uh, the morning after one, one heavy session, and he was just doing some basic cleaning, and it was agony. I, honestly, it was like having all my nerve endings stretched out and attached to the national grid. Um, and I didn't put... It took me a while to put two and two together, but eventually um, I realised that it was always worse after I, I'd done cocaine. And I know and my teeth started to crumble away. They're, they're kind of okay. They've survived and I've had some repair work and then they're not hideous. Yeah, it was a combination of that. The fact that I, I knew I would probably never achieve anything with my life if I carried on wasting every single weekend. Yeah. As far as rock bottoms go, I mean, there wasn't, there was a more of a kind of cost benefit analysis again. I, I, I you know, I, I would never tell anyone to do drugs or, or, or and it, conversely, I would never tell anyone that well, you mustn't do drugs. But yeah, there, there were definitely times when it felt really, really good. You know, as a lot of people who've talked about addiction have admitted, the highs get lower and the lows get lower as, as time goes on. You know, you, you get less out of it, and also the withdrawal gets worse. Well, you're just getting to baseline, aren't you, with the drug? That's the thing. When you get really addicted, like with alcohol, like with anything, you're just getting to baseline personality level by consuming lots of the drug. Yeah, right. One of the things that you talk about a little bit in your blog, in the posts that I've read, is of this kind of catch-22 that a lot of men, including myself at times in my life, find themselves in, where you are trying to be what you think women want which is a nice guy mm. and you are a nice guy but it turns out women aren't that interested in in nice guys or it feels like that a lot of the time yeah I mean, this do is you think that's true or? something that's it's not yet i haven't yet resolved it on my blog because it's, it's kind of an ongoing thing because it's certainly my belief I and mean, i grew up in the 70s I, I was born around about the time that jermaine greer uh, published the female eunuch and Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique had come out just before and it, uh, the way I saw feminism going was like, okay, if women's roles are going to change, then perforce men's roles are going to have to change too. We, we can't stay exactly the same and have women change what, what they're doing. Sure. And I, I, I agree. My, my intuition told me this would mean men would have to become nicer, more understanding, less macho, less concerned with authority. And it all seemed to be heading that way socially James Bond you had the, the really macho Sean Connery changed to the debonair more gentlemanly Roger Moore and he had things like Three of a Kind do you remember that sketch show with Lenny Henry Tracy Ullman and the other guy who I can never remember possibly David Copperfield I don't think I remember it because I was born in eight, I was born in 81 but yeah it was a fairly bad sketch show but it was quite popular and they had all these staple characters one of whom was medallion man the archetypal macho man but he was ridiculous so yeah. clearly the idea of the macho man was dying and new men and metrosexuality looked as if that they were going to be the future right so i guess i was even then not that necessarily my natural inclinations are to be an alpha male but all of this cultural information was pointing me towards being a nice guy this must be what women want mm. And yeah, most of my experiences have not necessarily tallied with that. Um, right. It seems every time I've been a bastard, whether accidentally or otherwise, someone's fallen in love with me, and every, every time I've 
being nice, they just wanted to be my friend. So that, that's a grossly unfair generalisation. The phenomenon is worse for younger women. Younger women are definitely much more concerned with, they tend to want a more traditional man, a, a show-off, somebody with status, somebody with money. Maybe a bit dangerous. As but well. A bit dangerous, because that's, that's the more primal sexual part of them, I think. And the more intellectual side doesn't really take over necessarily until they're in their later 20s or 30s and actually they realise that they want someone who can be a good father rather than someone who's an excellent lay. Yeah, I mean it didn't work out very well for me in my teenage years in that respect of being the nice guy and listening to the girls' problems and uh, hearing about their relationship problems but not Which is the last thing you want to hear to about. the relationship, yeah. Exactly. I mean, although I think I've created a slightly false history of myself. I was thinking about this recently. I was talking to my girlfriend about it. And uh, like I always say, you know, I had this terrible, like, you know, I had to listen to all these girls' problems, and, and I did. But I also spent most of my teens in relationships. Okay. Uh, what has happened is that the six months or whatever in between relationships, when I was single during that time, mm. hurt a lot. So that stayed in my mind but if I look at it like if I stack it out yeah yeah. I mean I've never been someone who's been successful with lots of women but I have been I guess a serially monogamous Mm. through my life which I guess is a a thing that a lot of people don't have and so you know whatever you've got you you, you're not happy with and I've started to realize maybe I should have been a bit more grateful maybe I should have been happy that I had these longer term things and that they you know were yeah, but mutually my, respectful to a certain extent and all that stuff my whole life I, I've always had lots of friends who've been like quite a few of my friends settled down immediately after university and they're still happily married today got lovely kids and, and you know, when we meet up and me and the husband will, will get very drunk and, and he'll say oh god I wish I had your life and I'll say oh god I wish I had your life sure, so yeah. yeah the grass is always greener that's it um, because although I have had some pretty miserable experiences I, I've also you know being single does have its upsides and there have been some pretty amazing times memorable times <laughs> <laughs> bizarre happenings at weddings and things like what well there was a sort of kind of a threesome once and there was another time with a, a woman who I shouldn't have done something with because she was married but she wouldn't take no for an answer I've yeah I've, I've had some very uh, exciting uh, experiences but never anything long-lasting so. no well well there's still time that if that's what you want then that, there is still time oh no i just want to say i don't want to also paint myself as the perennial victim you know it's no like, no it's not always yeah some, some girls have been mean to me but you know i haven't always been innocent myself and in, sure. in, in my 20s there were times when i dated people and then never called them again and there were a couple of times when i had sex with people and never called them again and i'm not proud of that well that's a really important realization a lot of the time i find that people who do paint themselves as the victim if you like people who do say i'm such a nice guy why are no women interested in me a lot of the time and i find they're not actually they're not actually a nice person they don't see themselves with the same clarity that they're trying to apply to the women who treat them bad so they don't notice when they treat people bad so I think that's a really balanced position to have come to where you can see your own manipulations or your own like I've been very unfair to women in my personal life at times and hopefully I've learned from those those times and and and, and, you know I wouldn't do it again I mean my first 
my first sexual relationship with my first girlfriend well second girlfriend but first sexual relationship after that relationship split up I certainly had lots of sex with her that she wanted the relationship back and I didn't and knew how to get that and how to how to not lie Mm. but lie you know the non-verbal lies that you can give to somebody that will then get get you what you want and I feel very guilty about that I mean I have apologized on the podcast if she's ever listening before but I can't get on the podcast so I I haven't been able to apologize in, in person Maybe I should stop asking her to come on the podcast and actually say, let's talk without a microphone. Yeah. But uh, I think that might be a little bit too much. Uh, I don't know. I think a microphone might be useful in terms of mediation. There was a lot of complications in that relationship. It wasn't just me. But it was sometimes me, and I, I am I'm sorry about it. And, and you know what? Because I'm, I'm going <laughs> to deal with uh, with some of these bad things I did. I never cheated on anyone. That's something I can say with hand on heart. But as I say, there were a couple of people I liked and then we slept together and then I realised I didn't quite like them quite so much anymore so I didn't call them. And I'd say that's literally two two or three different people and I feel terrible. But of all the stories that I've had to write for this blog, never mind the cocaine, never mind the escorts, never mind the suicide attempts, those ones, the one where I was in the wrong, are far and away the hardest ones to write. Yeah, I bet. It's tough to admit that you were in the wrong in the first place, but just writing it in a way that people might understand where you're coming from and okay you're admitting that you're a bastard but you still don't want people to get to the end of it and think you're a bastard (laughs) you've got to explain your reasons and sometimes your reasons aren't really any better than I didn't really think about the other person's feelings yeah but then that's an important thing to learn and I think it's an important thing to share what I think in general about sexuality and every other area of life is the more honest we are actually with ourselves and with each other about what we do and why we do it, mm. then the easier it gets to live in the world. I've been in situations with men really condemning cheating, right? And those men I have known have, have cheated. cheated yeah. That is a real... Uh, I get that, that drives me mad because, I mean, I'm the product of an infidelity and I don't hate my parents. Hating or judgment... That's not really the way to go. Like people make their own personal decisions, and as long as, you know, there are lines that you obviously, if you cross, then condemnation is everything you deserve. Mm. I'm not saying there aren't, but generally speaking, it, if it's consensual and it's, it may may involve lies or whatever. But can we not all see that we all have these capacities inside ourselves? And the more we understand it, like with the psychology thing, like with sex at dawn, if we understand why we're like we are then we'll maybe stop hating each other and hurting each other and hurting ourselves. I don't know. It's a bit utopian, all of this. It doesn't seem likely to happen. But <laughs> the more we talk about it, the better, basically. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, more guys who've visited prostitutes need to speak out and say why, and more people who've had drug problems. I mean, that's one of the things that Dan Savage is often talking about, about, like, you do know people who are in open relationships but they don't tell anyone so it becomes a kind of thing whereby and I understand why they don't tell anyone there is a lot of social stigma attached to it just Mm. like why you might choose not to tell people that you visited prostitutes but ultimately the more we know like it no one no one has to disclose what they do in their bedroom Mm. but disclosing how they interact with other human beings that's kind of a fair thing if you want to change 
these really strict social conditions that we all kind of have to work within. You know? Did you see the story last week about the triple marriage in Brazil? No. Basically, some clerk in a register office, um, three people walked in saying, we'd all like to be married. And this <laughs> clerk said, yeah, OK, fine. And and now the, the church, uh, the Catholic church, has weighed in and everyone's condemning them and saying, you know, how dare you, this is an abomination. Yeah. And I suppose people kind of have a point... And they say, well, if this goes on, who's to say that, you know, men can't be marrying donkeys and uh, motorbikes? But by the same token, it isn't really much of a leap ahead from hey, gay marriage. If somebody wants to marry a motorbike, I've got no problem with it. <laughs> I would question whether a donkey could consent yeah. to marriage. But <laughs> motorbike's fine. If someone wants to say they were married to a motorbike and they, they want to do that, that's fine. That does not hurt anybody. I mean, but that's my quite like that's my ruling. One of the Dan Savage rules, because he's very good on these kind of rules, is... He talks about relationships. He says you should obey the campsite rule of leaving it in as good a state or better than you came. When you so if you don't hurt the other person, then you've done you've done all right. And yeah. if you do hurt the other person, then try not to do that in the future. I think and don't don't spend all your time blaming yourself because that's probably not going to make you very good in the next relationship. I don't think people filled with guilt. Something I've discovered about myself is the more I shed the guilt the more I shed the kind of self-loathing and hatred and anger about myself, I'm a much better person to be around, you know? That, that, that actually, if you spend all your time living in that place, you don't really you don't really change. You just become a different problem, you know? Yeah, and it doesn't, it, as you say, it doesn't make you attractive. It doesn't make you yes. any more likely to make more friends or oh, man. have fun. That's the, and that's the crucial thing for anybody out there who's single or in a relationship where they're not interacting with their their partner in the way that they'd like I think that's the crucial thing to know that hating yourself that being angry with yourself doesn't make you more attractive and will be a barrier <laughs> to anybody wanting doesn't to have sex solve with you anything. I'm not saying you should necessarily do a blog about it or a podcast but sure. you need to move on and, and I don't want to define you completely by this sexuality topic so I mean before we we wrap up I would like to touch on another area of your life which is kind of quiz shows I guess you did Only Connect you said you'd been doing Only Connects things but you also were on Countdown weren't you I think yes a long time ago I think it was the first story I told at Spark actually yeah um, it's the one I heard live you doing in Edinburgh, in Edinburgh well, yeah. there were actually two versions of, of, of the story but it's a, I'll give you the very boiled down version which, which was after I left uh, uni uh, we were in the middle of the last recession so it was 93 I could only get a job in the pub living at home with my parents and um, just started playing along to Countdown because I used to get home just as it started. Found I was quite good, applied to go on uh, and ended up winning the series. Um, again, and the final was against an 11-year-old child <laughs> prodigy. <laughs> Angelic-looking really kid. Funny. So yeah, I was 23, he was 11. I think the, the, the Spark version of the story, the, the sanitised version of the story, is how I grew up playing word games with my both my grandmothers, they both, uh, one used to play Countdown with me when it was on Channel 4 in the early days, and the other one used to play a dictionary word game with me called, called Words Out of Words, which is similar, just rearranging letters. And it was all about how they sort of prepared the way for my great Countdown victory, and even though one had died a few years before I was on, and the other nan so awfully ironically and tragically died the night the show went out that's hard and the anagram uh, for the final countdown conundrum was was her name <laughs> she was so spooky but she'd spent the whole day at the local shops boasting to all her friends about how her grandson was the champion of countdown so 
in a way, she went out on a high note. You had this kind of dilemma, really, about whether you should go all out and try and beat this child. Yeah, it was. Uh, the thing is, I had really because I didn't have a proper job and I had a lot of spare time. It was like the training montage out of Rocky. I, I really went for it. I bought an anagram finder. I got a friend to write a computer program that simulated the numbers game. I learned the dictionary. When I got there, it was like this is the one thing in my life I'm going to win I was really really determined to win and then to find out I was in the final against this really cute 11 year old kid I felt awful but then I mean he had done I like he, he he got up the heat he was a, the top the top he was top seed top seed he was a junior national scrabble champion you can't help your street cred to have beat a 12 year old on it's not no it's not <laughs> the ideal television. you know it would have been much 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 better to beat an old lady <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> no I mean, no, I think it would have been. I think I, I think actually people would have been behind you a little bit more if it was an old lady. But still, uh, obviously an old lady is not the ideal. You really want to... Really what you want to do, I imagine that you definitely would want to do this, is someone who looks like Brad Pitt you want to completely trash on uh, on Countdown. Yes, some really sort of <laughs> smooth someone in his yeah, yeah. early 30s who's obviously got everything he wants from life. Yes, exactly. Someone yeah, someone who's... Someone who needs taking down a bit more Exactly. So what's the unsanitised version? Weirdly, maybe this is just the world of TV, I don't know, I haven't spent enough time in it, but there was quite a lot of panky-panky going on behind the scenes. Um, <laughs> I, Richard Whiteley was entirely innocent, as was Carol Vorderman, as was Susie Dent. But yeah, the contestants, I guess it was that mixture of the bright lights and the TV, the glamour, and there, was the usually, glamour there were usually quite Countdown. a few free drinks after the shows had been recorded. And uh, yeah, there were a couple of unofficial games of Countdown in the hotel rooms over that period of time. Because I ended up going back quite a lot, because you had the qualifying rounds, yeah. and then you had the finals. They found out I was writing a bit of radio comedy, so... Probably the highlight of the whole thing was they let me write Richard Whiteley's jokes for two days. Oh, wow, that's fun. <laughs> so, you know, his terrible puns that he used to do uh, in between rounds. So that, that was me for two days. And then there was the Champion of Champions, which was about six months later, which I didn't do very well in. And and there was another all-time Champions final. So I, I went four or five times I went up there in the end. And, yeah, it seemed every time, I guess... I was Also, I was a bit more confident. I was found something I was good at and... Um, Maybe that sort of confidence somehow came out. Well, I guess you yeah. had some status. I guess yeah. one thing that people who do evolutionary psychology suggest, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but is that men with status do better. Yeah, and that, that was <laughs> the closest I've ever come to having any sort of status. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I think within the boundaries of, of people who like countdown, that's a very high status to have won it. <laughs> what do you think of it now? I mean, it's gone downhill, hasn't it? I don't know. I haven't seen it in years. Well, Dave, I mean, apart from the fact that poor old Richard Wiley passed away. Yeah, and then um, w- Whatever you think of him, he, he was well suited to that show. You know? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I thought he was very good at what he did. And he was also really, really nice to me. He was a very friendly, helpful guy. But they kept messing around with the transmission time, and they made it longer, then it might be shorter again. Now. They lost Carol Vorderman as well. Yeah, they've they, had three or four probably a mistake as well. different presenters, some of whom have been more successful than others. Uh, but it's still soldiering on. I think I saw Jimmy Carr presenting one the other day. Really? Yeah. That's, I don't know if that was a celebrity edition. Or that's something. a really weird idea. I don't know. I guess he's he's got the puns. He has, yeah. He has got the puns. So you went to Oxford. Yeah. It's a funny thing, this, this show, because I've come up against my own prejudices, you know, because I didn't go to Oxford. I My English teacher wanted me to go, and I chose not to because I was a class warrior. 
Although, you know, looking back, I was a middle-class class warrior. <laughs> I've come up against these prejudices because these days a lot of my friends went to Cambridge or Oxford and I've had to square that circle a little bit and say, hang on, some nice people actually went to these places that are everything that I think or yeah. thought was wrong. But there I mean, were a few. I mean, everyone in the cabinet is still, you know, who I do hate. Yeah, now you from, see that a lot of them were, I think they went, couple of years before me Cameron and uh, Johnson and, and, and the like and but they just moved in a completely different circles they all went to the Oxford Union they, they tended to go to different colleges I, I went to Exeter College which I think had the highest proportion of state school students then and possibly still does today so it was more than half state school then um, and I went to a, a comp so I, I don't have a completely privileged background. No sure I don't think you do I mean your your stories of your childhood don't suggest that <laughs> and also Swindon I guess is a little more well to do than somewhere up north you know I've got family in Swindon I know it's a very social background in the area. And... Yeah it's, it's sort of been the the classic 20th century family really and grandparents were very much working class parents were lower middle class and then by the time I went to university probably upper middle and yeah I did well at school and I was strongly encouraged to go to Oxford I didn't want to go to be honest because the work load there is so much greater than it is anywhere else sure yeah a lot of unis say, say you're doing French you might get given one or two essays per term to do but we had to do like two or three a week and for each one you had to attend Let's say, yeah, you're supposed to go to about 15 lectures a week, one or two tutorials, each of which required an essay, a translation class, and I was doing linguistics as well, so I had to go to a few of those. Most weeks, I worked out, I was reading about 24 books a week and writing, so it was pretty tough. I I would much rather have gone somewhere like Southampton, which um, I've heard had a a much better social life, and, uh, (laughs) and you could still come out with a respectable degree, but having had... A good time, uh, rather than having worked your socks off. So. Yeah, no, sure. And I think I've, from having talked to people about these things, I think which college you go to has a lot to do with how many doors get open. If you're with people who have got blue blood or not, and all that sort of stuff, I've hopefully changed my prejudice level to not be prejudiced against people from those places. Although I still don't think that people who come exclusively from those universities and from the public schools that precede them should be running the country. No, but and, I don't and the think BBC and yeah, exactly the everywhere. Uh, but I don't think anybody that I've spoken to on this show would disagree with that. Like <laughs> that's my like that's my barometer. Like if somebody went to Oxford and Cambridge and agrees that it's a privileged situation, then then that's all right. Mm. It's the people who kind of claim it's their birthright or you know whatever else goes on that I'm probably just inventing these people right now in my head but I mean it does it open doors I mean I guess it does open doors I think it closes as many as it opens these days really I, yeah I, I I know for a fact that I failed to get two jobs that I went for when I left because I went to Oxford and Cambridge and there were people who were very much kind of reverse snobs. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, people like me hopefully get eventually get successful. And then certainly if I saw someone went to Oxford and Cambridge on a CV and I was deciding whether I wanted them to work for me, I think I would probably choose the person who didn't. Yeah, because, you know, uh, they, what do they know about the real I world? Know. Yeah, exactly. That's, um, that was what I would think. <laughs> Well, quite a lot it would turn out you know you've you, you know if you've had three suicide attempts before you've come then you know a lot yeah. about what the real world yeah, that's but I mean you're working for the Guardian now I guess so that is a I would a door say that, yeah that opens that door doesn't it but uh, that wasn't my Oxford degree that got me in there it was the contact yeah it, but that's the it, thing it, that it, it is the fact it? that because as well as doing my degree in fact I don't think I've I don't even think I've got my degree certificate so if anyone ever asked me to produce it it's the first honestly no, I haven't got mine um, either <laughs> 
but it, it was the people I met and uh, the one thing I did for fun when I was at college was do comedy a bit of stand-up but mostly sketch comedy yeah so we took a couple of shows up to Edinburgh and uh, it was those guys some of the older ones got a job on the Guardian website they got me involved on a couple of projects don't know if anyone remembers the 1994 newspaper of the future which is a special edition of the Guardian where they simulated what papers would be like in the year 2004 so they, they printed it on Tyvek which is this indestructible waterproof paper and they were all personalised and they actually got quite a few things right including the fact that Arnold Schwarzenegger was going to be the governor of California wow which that's was pretty was amazing prediction so yeah I did that and then a job came up on the guide which was in the next room to what was then the Guardian New Media site so I, I applied for it and um, the, the editor world's shortest interview he, he didn't even I don't even think I sent him my CV he basically took me for a coffee in the canteen he said Have you, can you use Quark Express I lied and said yes and said okay you've got the job yeah I mean it is contacts I think I went to Lancaster University and now my friends are starting to be useful contacts that makes me more privileged than somebody else I, I don't deny it but I think people who went to Oxford they have contacts that maybe are parents of people sometimes that's the thing that they can get into things that way in a way that, that I had to wait for my friends to become successful <laughs> yeah, in order so for them to be useful to me a combination of networking and nepotism yeah, I guess I guess that they got the nepotism side that don't, that doesn't go on with the other universities. But but I mean, like you say, I mean, going to Oxford and Cambridge doesn't mean that you're going to be happier or more successful than anyone else. It just means you're statistically more likely to, I guess. No, and I would say be successful at least. This is not something I can back up with statistics right immediately, but I think it's true to say that uh, Oxford and Cambridge have higher suicide rates than most other universities because the pressures are higher. Well, three. I went to the university with the highest suicide rate in the country. Oh, did you? Right. Um, but <laughs> that's because of the uh, architecture, I think. There's a, there, there was a tower that was where people would kill themselves. And it oh, was, it was easy. Easy to kill. So, right. yeah. But my, the guy I lived with in my second year um, killed himself uh, before his third year. There were three suicide attempts within the college, which was only 300 people in my, in my last year. None of them successful, thank goodness. Yeah, and I don't know if this was more to do with parental pressure or peer pressure. Or, um, yeah, I mean, I guess there is a lot of pressure in that place. I mean, th that's my one regret, though. I mean, not not that I didn't kill myself, but the, the, a separate point, which is the one regret I have about not trying to go that route, not even trying, uh, is that the contacts that you like. You say you did comedy. Mm. I mean, as, a, as somebody who wants to write, as somebody who wants to get into the media that seems to me like I did I was in a comedy group at, yeah, at university yeah. but my comedy group that I was in at university didn't go on to be on television like mm. it seems that every comedy group that went to Oxford and Cambridge did well, I don't know, if, I don't know. None, none probably of some of them don't you know? none of us did really I mean some of the guys from my little sketch troupe are very successful screenwriters now right and most of them, I think one one guy was went on to become Ricky Gervais's agent, but it, it was the generation before us that were really successful. So Dave Schneider, uh, yeah, he's a comic actor. He's been in I quite know a lot him. of stuff. Yeah, he's he um, often I'm does. You knew she was Cambridge, wasn't he? I think I, I, I don't know. I think I for think. sure. I'm not sure. But then you had uh, Stuart Lee. Richard Herring and Al Murray were all one or two years above us. That's right. I mean, they're the ones that I know that were successful from that that vintage. Before them was Fry and Laurie and all that lot, wasn't it? Before yeah, that. and Rowan Atkinson. Yeah. But they, they were just sufficiently older than me and therefore not 
respectful of me because I was <laughs> an upstart and that they were not remotely useful to me as contacts. It was only other people from my year, really. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I mean, they. I mean, this is the thing. But that's what I. That's what I regret about not trying to do it. I think if I'd have gone to Oxford or Cambridge at that point in my life, it would have been the hell that I thought it would would have been because I would have brought that hell with me. I would have like had such a chip on my shoulder and an inferiority complex at the same time. It, that I would have been even more, you know, hard to know than I was at Lancaster. A guy called um, one of the Guardian writers, one of my favourite Guardian writers, Stuart Jeffries, once wrote. He went to Oxford and he had a terrible time there. Yeah, because and it sounded like maybe he was coming from a similar place than you. He came with a bit of a chip on his shoulder, and um, he, he fed the chip. You know, he just yeah, he, he kind of went there. expecting there to have to, a terrible time. It's there time. for you to and, see, isn't it? Did. If you choose to see it, He's, then he, it's there. he wrote this really good um, long piece, maybe ten ten years ago or so, or even longer, about his terrible time. It was Jeffries. a book. Okay, I think it was a book. Okay. It's it's this book about mostly about TV, but he talks a lot about his dark period. Yeah, well, that's Oxford, interesting. Well, I, I, I spoke to a guy I know called Richard Tyrone Jones for this show, and he's a spoken word artist, and he's really good. But he went to Oxford, and, and I think he hated it for mm. similar reasons. Uh, you know, coming from a working class background in Wolverhampton, and then going to Oxford is a big culture shock. I think. If it hadn't been for the comedy, I, I think I'd have hated it too. Yeah, but the comedy was such a blast going out to Edinburgh. And, Doing the uh, Oxford well, you make, comedy cellar every Sunday, but you make your life, don't you, with your, with your social group? So mm. if you hit a like, I I went to Lancaster. I could have hated it in a different context, I'm sure. But because of the people I met, I did. I didn't like the courses. I didn't like anything I studied. Uh, particularly, there were things I got from them, but they weren't what I had. They weren't what I had in mind. They weren't what I thought they were going to be. Yeah. But the social groups that I met there, that you know, changed my life and was a incredibly creative period and a good thing about when you're a student although it doesn't sound like at Oxford but you do have the time to do the creative projects that you're never going to have time to do again I mean, I'm just about getting back to the level of creativity that I had at university and that's been a long time struggling to, yeah. to find that eke out that time but I mean it's the social groups that you have that makes or breaks your experience I'm sure yeah, there were people it's always about the friends yeah. it's like if, same with, with in a work situation you can be doing a terrible job if your colleagues are fun yeah. and you go out for lunch together play yeah. cards go to the pub afterwards I'd rather do a boring job with nice colleagues than a really interesting job with bad ones it's, it's definitely finding your niche finding a kind of a, a scene I guess that's what it felt like when I was at uni it felt like we had a little scene going on mm. and uh you know, I miss that now. So the last question that I ask people is, do you have anything to plug? <laughs> uh, well, apart from the blog... What's the URL for the blog, by the way? It's www.womanology.co.uk.com because I couldn't, couldn't get hold of that one. Oh, does somebody um, else have that? Someone else, yeah, someone else already had that. And I by saw the, that by on the Facebook, way, yeah, there's a, when they, aren't they challenging you about it? Well, yeah, so, someone self-published something with a very similar title, and I don't think there, there's any legal threat or anything. No, I followed the Amazon thing over, and no way is it the same thing as what you're doing, so I don't Yeah, really it's, it's a similar name, but it's an <laughs> entirely different kettle of fish. I don't think you can Mostly even about copyright. vaginas, apparently. Y yeah, that's right, <laughs> that's what it looked like, and which is... Yeah, but I mean, I don't even think you can copyright a name. I think they were just pointing. It was more of a nya 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 nya. I did it first. The, yeah, that's the, what the, it was. The, 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 you can't do this. Yeah. My original um, planned name for the uh, site and, and slash book, if it ever happens, was uh, Chickipedia, because <laughs> I thought that was a funny joke. But it turns out that Chickipedia's already gone as well. That's the domain name for a website about 
poultry farming. Funnily enough, <laughs> it's, it's always a shame who gets the puns, isn't it? So, yeah. like, some so, there's so many good names that are just ruined by some rubbish thing getting it first. People can follow you on Twitter as well, can't they? I think. Yes, I'm. Again, again well, womanology is uh, was gone on there, so I'm underscore womanology underscore on Twitter. Yeah, it's tricky. I had the same problem with stand up tragedy. That uh, that was already taken, so I have to be stand up for tragedy because no. it's. But I mean, at least that's something. I didn't want to be stand up tragedy two or one or whatever. There should be some sort of independent adjudicator who comes along and says, "Look, you actually deserve <laughs> this name. You 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 just made it up. You don't even use Twitter." Yeah, I guess. But I mean the. The, the concept of stand-up tragedy wasn't complete, wasn't original. I mean, it's just something that I've gone right. I can make something of that. But I don't know if it's I hard heard to, it in various places. I, I did st- um, stand-up for a, for a few years in the nineties, uh, and part of my routine used to be about how in Russia they didn't have comedy clubs, but they had stand-up tragedy clubs instead. So I did this big thing about somebody Russian basically moaning about their lives and it sounds like a terrible joke it was actually one of the more popular sections of my act <laughs> so. well I think it, I mean because I heard the, the the concept originally on Mark Maron's podcast WTF and it was said by Eddie Peppertone who I met briefly in Edinburgh this year and he had this routine about what we need in this country now is stand-up tragedy because we just need to all be on stage crying. I'm not doing it justice, he's an excellent comedian, but I, and I'm not. So that's where I first heard it, but then Helen Zaltzman said to me, her brother Andy Zaltzman had a routine that had that within it in his early days, and then I went on Wikipedia and discovered that it's actually a, an official genre. Like it's <laughs> okay. a, if you Wikipedia stand-up tragedy, it is a genre. Anyway, stand-up tragedy is my podcast and live show that I produce that I guess has come out of the blue to people's ears who are listening to this for the first time so you can find that at www.standuptragedy.co.uk I always like having an opportunity to plug my own stuff I very rarely do but that's not what you're plugging you're plugging Womanology and Womanology on Twitter is, it, is there anything else you'd like to add? Or, I mean sometimes people take this plug thing as a as a bit more of a general statement about adv- of, you know, advice or statement about the world or my whatever. legacy to the world but when you frame it that way it's a lot of pressure (laughs) be nice to each other and talk about something more yeah that's a good one that's a good one to end it and the last thing I ask people to do is to say goodbye to the audience goodbye audience see you later bye you can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast you can find it on Facebook it's Getting Better Acquainted have a search on Facebook and like it Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app, you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted. I make a podcast about conversations And so that should suggest to you that I love conversations and I love real people's conversations, everyday people's conversations about their lives and their thoughts, the conversations that never get heard. Some of those conversations are getting heard though at the moment. There's this new project that I'd like to tell you about that my friend Jesse Levine from In The Dark is part of called The Listening Project. It's an ambitious new partnership between BBC Radio 4, BBC Local and National Radio Stations and the British Library. They are asking people up and down the country to share an intimate conversation with a close friend or relative 
to help build up a unique picture of our lives today. Some of these conversations will be broadcast across BBC Radio and archived by the British Library, preserving them for future generations. BBC Radio producers have been gathering conversations from across the UK, covering everything from living with Alzheimer's to falling in love in the front seat of a reliant Robin. And now they'd like you to record and share your own conversations. Perhaps you know someone with a fantastic story that you'd love them to share with the world. There may be something that you've always wanted to discuss with someone close to you, or maybe you just like to celebrate happy moments in your life or reflect on memories of a dearly departed friend. What you talk about is completely up to you. This project is about creating space for you and a loved one to have the conversation you always meant to have. By taking part, you'll also have the chance to be a part of history. You can choose to submit your conversation to the British Library, who may add it to their permanent audio archive. Don't worry if you've never recorded anything before. They've written a simple step-by-step -step guide on their website. All you need is a computer, a laptop, camera or phone with a microphone. And believe me, if I can record a conversation, you can record a conversation. Find out more about The Listening Project by typing The Listening Project into Google or by going to bbc.co.uk slash radio4 slash features slash the hyphen listening hyphen project. And it will take you through how to record your conversations. I really think recording conversations is a valuable thing. It's valuable for you and it's valuable for the people who listen. So... Why not be a part of this really excellent project?